Chapter 53. The Tree and the Fruit. Our previous examination of this difficult paragraph 7, 15 through 20 emphasized particularly the element of subtlety in the false prophets, those men who come to us in sheep's clothing, but who inwardly are ravening wolves. To many people, this is a difficult section because of its context, because it comes after those words, Judge not that ye be not judged, for with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. Yet these words were uttered by our Lord himself. The false prophets are always unhappy about certain statements of our Lord. They are never happy about Matthew 23, for example, where our Lord described the Pharisees as whited sepulchers. Our modern false prophets try to find nice things to say even about the Pharisees. The sheep's clothing prophet teaches that we must never say anything which is at all critical or severe. But the words are uttered by our Lord himself. Therefore, we must face them. Again, let us repeat, we must avoid censoriousness. But we cannot expound the Sermon on the Mount fully unless we face them and try to deal with them quite honestly, realizing as we do so that we are setting up a standard by which we ourselves shall be judged. Our Lord clearly was concerned to emphasize this matter. He has said that the false prophets are to be known by their fruits, and then he goes on to elaborate this by drawing this further picture. He says, Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. You notice that he starts and ends with, Ye shall know them by their fruits, and wherefore by their fruits ye shall know them. Repetition for the sake of emphasis. First, we must be quite clear on one purely technical point, and that is the meaning of this word corrupt. Every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. Corrupt, of course, does not mean rotten because a decayed or rotten tree does not bring forth fruit at all. That is very important, because if we fail to notice it, we shall again be missing this element of subtlety, which is the main thing in our Lord's emphasis. He is calling attention to the fact that trees which resemble each other in that they look perfectly all right do not of necessity produce the same kind of fruit. One tree may produce good fruit, the other tree may produce poor fruit. What is called evil fruit does not mean entirely rotten either. It means it is poor in quality. It is not good fruit. So the contrast which our Lord brings out is between two types of tree which to look at may be almost identical, but which, when you come to judge the fruit, you find to be entirely different. One you can use, and the other you cannot. Clearly, there is very profound teaching here. Having considered the question of the doctrine, we can now come to the matter of the life, the conduct, and the behavior. Before, however, we come to the details, we must emphasize the great principle which our Lord is here inculcating. It is that to be a Christian is something central to personality, something vital and fundamental. It is not a matter of appearance on the surface either with regard to belief or life. In using this picture of the character, the nature, the real essence of these trees and the fruit which they produce, our Lord is placing very great emphasis upon that. 
And surely this is the point which we must always be looking for in ourselves and in others. He seems to be drawing attention to the danger of being misled by appearances. It is precisely the same as in that other figure of the false prophets which come to us in sheep's clothing. In other words, it is the danger of appearing to be Christian without really being so. We have already seen that that can happen in the matter of teaching and doctrine. A man may appear to be preaching the gospel when, in reality, as judged by the true tests, he is not doing so at all. It is exactly the same with regard to conduct in life. The danger here is to try to make ourselves Christian by adding certain things to our lives instead of becoming something new, instead of receiving life within, instead of the very nature which is within us being renewed after the image of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The whole emphasis in our Lord's teaching here is upon the man himself, and he is really saying that what matters in the last analysis is just that. A man may speak in the right way, he may apparently live in the right way, and yet, according to our Lord, he may be a false prophet the whole time. He may be assuming the appearance of the Christian life without really being Christian. This has been a constant source of trouble and of danger in the long history of the Christian church. But our Lord has warned us right at the beginning that we must grasp this principle, that to be a Christian means a change in a man's very life and nature. It is the doctrine of the rebirth. No man's service is of any value unless his nature is changed. We shall presently be dealing with that statement. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? There we are looking at a man who has been doing many things in his life, but he himself is not changed. He was saying and doing the right things, but they are of no value. Exactly the same thing can happen with life and conduct. Christianity is unique in this respect, that it is concerned primarily about the state of the heart. And in Scripture, the heart is generally not the seat of the emotions, but the center of the personality. Take, for instance, Matthew 12, 33-37. There, surely our Lord puts it quite clearly and specifically. Either make the tree good and his fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt and his fruit corrupt, for the tree is known by his fruit. The emphasis is again upon the character or the nature of the tree. It is that, he says in another place, which comes out of the heart that defiles a man. It is not merely the things you do on the surface. It is not a question of washing the outside of the cups and the platters. It is not that which goes in. It is that which comes out. It is the man himself that really counts. Our Lord is at great pains to emphasize in this picture that what is in the center of the heart is certain to proclaim itself. It will proclaim itself in its beliefs, in its teaching, and doctrine. It will proclaim itself also in its life. It is not always easy to see that, but our Lord tells us that if we have eyes illuminated by the teaching of the New Testament, we shall always be able to recognize it. We saw about doctrine, for instance, that if you only watch to see whether a man is going to say things that are outrageously wrong, you will probably never detect the false prophets because they do not say such things. But if you realize that there are certain things a true Christian must always emphasize, and if you watch for them, then you will discover that they are omitted, and you will see that the man you thought was a Christian is really a false prophet, and therefore a grievous danger. It is exactly the same with regard to the life. 
we can show this in a number of principles. The first principle is that there is an indissoluble link between belief and life. The nature will out. That which a man is ultimately in the depth is always going to reveal and manifest itself, and it does so in belief and life. The two things are indissolubly linked together. As a man thinks, so eventually he is. As a man thinks, so he does. In other words, we inevitably proclaim what we are and what we believe. It does not matter how careful we are. It is bound to come out. Nature must express itself. You do not get grapes of thorns or figs of thistles. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. You are not in the realm of appearances. You are now examining in a more critical manner. Our Lord lays these things down as absolutes. And if we observe ourselves and others and the whole of life carefully, we must agree that this is perfectly true. We may be deceived for a while. Appearances can be very deceptive, as we all know, but they do not last. The Puritans were very fond of dealing at great length with what they called temporary believers. They meant by that people who seemed to come under the influence of the gospel and who gave the appearance of being truly and soundly converted and regenerate. Such people said the right things, and there was a change in their lives. They appeared to be Christian. But the Puritans called them temporary believers because those people gave clear, unmistakable evidence afterwards that they had never truly become Christian at all. That kind of thing often happens during revivals. Whenever there is a religious awakening or any religious excitement, you generally find people who are, as it were, carried along by the flood. They do not know quite what is happening, but they come under the general influence of the Holy Spirit and are clearly affected for the time being. But according to this teaching, they may never become truly Christian. There is a discussion of this in 2 Peter 2, where the Apostle describes such cases clearly and graphically. He talks about certain people who had come into the church and had been accepted as Christians, but who had gone out. He describes them in these terms. The dog is turned to his own vomit again, and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. You see what has happened. To use his illustration, even the sow can be washed and can appear to be clean on the surface, but there is no change in nature. This becomes yet clearer when we compare it with what the Apostle Peter says in verse 4 of chapter 1 of that same epistle. He says that the Christian has been delivered from the corruption that is in the world through lust. But when he comes to these temporary believers in the second chapter, he says that they have been washed from not the corruption, but the pollution. There is a kind of superficial cleansing, which does not change the nature. Washing is of real value, but it can be very misleading. A man who is washed on the surface only may give all the appearance of being a Christian. But our Lord's argument is that what really decides whether he is one or not is the nature within. And that nature within is bound to express itself. You may have to wait before you can see any true evidence. God sees it from the beginning, but we are very slow to see these things. But what a man is, he is bound to show. He will show it in his teaching for certain. He will show it in his life also. It is quite inevitable. We can say, therefore, that true Christian belief must of necessity produce that characteristic type of living. That is surely the meaning of this question, do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? These things can never be separated. 
the inner nature is bound to express itself. A man's final belief is bound to manifest itself sooner or later in his life. We must be careful, therefore, that we do not mistake for the real thing that which looks like true Christianity, but which is in reality merely sham and only outward appearance. The exhortation is that we should teach and discipline ourselves always to look carefully for the fruit. We must now consider in detail the nature or the character of the good fruit. We must look for it in ourselves and in others. We must be very careful because there are people standing outside the narrow and straight gate who say to us, You need not do all that. This is the way. And we can be misled by them. Therefore, we must learn to discriminate, and once more, as we come to examine the fruit, we must bear this element of subtlety in mind. There are types of life which can closely simulate true Christianity, and they are obviously the most dangerous of all. It seems more and more clear that the greatest enemies of the true Christian faith are not those who are right out in the world militantly persecuting Christianity or flagrantly ignoring its teaching, but rather those who have a false and spurious Christianity. They are the people who will receive the condemnation which our Lord pronounces here on the false prophet. If you look at the history of the church throughout the centuries, you will find that this has always proved to be the case. It is a false and counterfeit Christianity that has always been a hindrance to and the greatest enemy of true spirituality. And surely the greatest trouble at this present moment is the worldly state of the church. We should be much more concerned about the state of the church herself than about the state of the world outside the church. It seems increasingly evident that the explanation of the present state of Christendom is to be found inside the church and not outside. We must bear in mind the question of the subtlety of this whole matter, and therefore we must apply certain delicate tests. The tests can be both general and particular. Here we are, as it were, looking at someone who makes a profession of Christianity. He does not say anything obviously wrong and appears to be living a good Christian life. How do we test such a person? You can have good, ethical, moral people with a high code and standard of personal life and living who look remarkably like Christians but who may not be Christian at all. How do you tell the difference? Here are some of the questions for which you must seek an answer. First of all, why is the man living this sort of life? Take the case of a modern good man who makes no pretense of Christianity, or that of a man who attends a place of worship regularly, but who, as judged by New Testament standards, is not a Christian. Why do they live as they do? There are many reasons for this. It may be purely a matter of temperament. There are certain people who have been born nice. They have an equable temperament and character. They're quiet. There's nothing naturally vicious or offensive about them. They have to make no effort to be like this. They were born like that. Is the kind of person they are. It is something purely physical and natural. Secondly, does this man live this kind of life because he holds certain beliefs or subscribes to certain moral teaching? There are men, in other words, who are what may be called good pagans. They are admirably delineated and analyzed in a book called The Failure of the Good Pagan by Rosalind Murray. Such men have very high standards, and they live up to them in their daily practice. A man may do all that quite apart from Christianity. So if you're going to judge merely by the general appearances of a man's life and living, then obviously you may well be deceived. It is often said that there are better Christians outside the Christian church than inside. 
What that means is that you may find good morality outside the church. But good morality may have nothing to do with Christianity. It has no essential connection with it. Greek pagan philosophers propounded their great moral teaching before Christ came. Still more significantly, Greek philosophers were sometimes the most bitter opponents of the Christian gospel. They were the very men who regarded the preaching of the cross as foolishness. So you do not merely look at the man and his life in general. You must try to discover reasons and motives for his actions. From the Christian standpoint, there is only one vital test at this point. Does this man give the impression that he is living this sort of life because he is a Christian and because of his Christian faith? If he does not live this life because he is a Christian, there is no value in it. It is what our Lord calls corrupt fruit. The Old Testament puts it very strongly when it says, All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. It was righteousness in the world's eyes, but it was as filthy rags in the sight of God. It is only that which is the outcome of Christian character and springs from the new nature, which is of any value ultimately in the sight of God. There then is our general test. Let us now look at certain particular tests. Here we must be careful lest again we expose ourselves to the charge of censoriousness, and we must be fully aware that what we are saying is a judgment upon ourselves. The particular tests of this life are both negative and positive. By negative, we mean that if a man is not a true Christian, and if he is not the true Christian doctrine, we shall inevitably find somewhere in his life a certain slackness, a certain failure to conform to the true Christian character. He does not do anything outrageously wrong. We cannot convict him of drunkenness or murder, etc. But unless a man believes those essential tenets of the Christian faith which we emphasized earlier, we shall find a slackness somewhere in his life. If a man is not conscious of the utter, absolute holiness of God and the exceeding sinfulness of sin, if he does not see that the real message of the cross of Calvary is that all man's righteousness is worthless and that he is an utter, helpless, foul sinner, he is going to show this in his life. It is bound to show, and in fact it does, though he may conform to a general moral code. There is always somewhere in a man who rejects this high doctrine of salvation— a failure to walk the narrow way, and a conformity at some point or other to the world and its outlook. His way of life may look remarkably like the Christian's, but if you watch and observe it in detail, you will find that it fails. It is very difficult to put this in a clear and explicit manner. There are certain people about whom all you can say is that, while you find nothing wrong with them in particular, you nevertheless feel that they are wrong centrally. You cannot find anything specific to condemn, but at the same time you feel that their outlook is secular and not spiritual, that though they never do anything that is outrageously worldly, their whole attitude is worldly. There is in them a lack of tone and an absence of that peculiar aura which is always present in the man who is truly spiritual. But to put it positively, what we look for in anybody who claims to be Christian is evidence of the Beatitudes. The test of fruit is never negative. It is positive. Certain apples may look all right, but you begin to eat them and you will find that they are sour. Now that is the positive kind of test. A true Christian must exemplify the Beatitudes because you do not get grapes from thorns or figs from thistles. A good tree must bring forth good fruit. It cannot help itself. It is bound to. A man who has the divine nature within himself must produce this good fruit, the good fruit which is described in the Beatitudes. He is poor in spirit. He mourns because of sin. 
He is meek. He hungers and thirsts after righteousness. He is a peacemaker. He is pure in heart, and so on. These are some of the tests, and they are tests which always exclude the good pagan. They also always exclude false prophets and temporary believers, because these are the tests of a man's ultimate nature and his real being. Or it can be put in terms of the fruit of the Spirit described in Galatians 5. The fruit that is formed in us and manifests itself is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, meekness, temperance, faith. That is the fruit, and that is what we must look for in a man's life. It is not found in the man who is just morally good. This is the fruit that only a good tree produces. A Christian can generally be known by his very appearance. The man who really believes in the holiness of God, and who knows his own sinfulness and the blackness of his own heart, the man who believes in the judgment of God and the possibility of hell and torment, the man who really believes that he himself is so vile and helpless that nothing but the coming of the Son of God from heaven to earth and his going to the bitter shame and agony and cruelty of the cross could ever save him and reconcile him to God. This man is going to show all that in his whole personality. He is a man who is bound to give the impression of meekness. He is bound to be humble. Our Lord reminds us here that if a man is not humble, we are to be very wary of him. He can put on a kind of sheep's clothing, but that is not true humility. That is not true meekness. And if a man's doctrine is wrong, it will generally show itself at this point. He will be affable and pleasant. He will appeal to the natural man and to the things that are physical and carnal. But he will not give the impression of being a man who has seen himself as a hell-bound sinner and who has been saved by the grace of God alone. Truth within must of necessity affect a man's appearance. The New Testament man is a sober man. He is grave and humble. He is a meek man. He has the joy of the Lord in his heart, yes, but he is not effusive. He is not boisterous. He is not carnal in his life. He is a man who says with Paul, We that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened. 2 Corinthians 5.4 To say and to believe that is bound to affect the whole man, even his very dress as well as his demeanor. He is not interested in pomp and show and externalities. He is not interested in making an impression. He is meek and concerned about God and his relationship to him and the truth of God. The ultimate test of all, however, is humility. If we have the pride of life and of the world in us, of necessity we do not know much about the truth, and we should examine ourselves again to make sure that we have the new nature within us. What is within is going to show itself. If I am a worldly-minded person, though I may preach a great doctrine, though I may have given up certain things, it will come out in my idle speech. Our Lord says that we shall be judged by our idle words. See Matthew 12:36. It is when we are off guard that we really show what we are. We can make ourselves appear to be Christian, but it is what comes out suddenly that reveals our real nature. So everything about this man is going to proclaim what he is. The way in which a man preaches is often much more significant than what he says, because the way in which he speaks displays what the man really is. A man's methods sometimes deny the message that he is preaching. A man who preaches judgment and salvation, and yet laughs and jokes, 
is denying his own doctrine. Self-confidence, self-assurance, reliance upon human ability and personality proclaim that man has a nature within him which is far removed from that of the Son of God, who is meek and lowly in heart. Such a man is unlike the Apostle Paul, who when he was preaching in Corinth did not come to them with self-confidence and self-assertion, but in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. How we give ourselves away, how we proclaim by our unguarded actions what we really are. Finally, we must remember that whatever we may think of these things, and however wrongly we may judge, and however much we may be deceived by false prophets, God is the judge, and God is never deceived. Every tree, therefore, which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. God have mercy upon us. May He awaken us to these vital principles and enable us to exercise this discrimination with regard to ourselves and with regard to all others who may be a danger to our souls and who are grievously misrepresenting the cause of our blessed Lord in this sinful and needy world. Let us concentrate upon being certain that we have the divine nature, that we are partakers of it, that the tree is good, because if the tree is good, the fruit also must of necessity be good.